The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, it's time that you give yourself the gift of truth. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. And to get in touch with me, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, I want to hear from you. Just go to our website and click on the contact button. And also don't forget to listen to Sanitas Radio. Just go to sanitasradio.com. It's your life. Take control. A few weeks ago, a loyal listener who's a retired flight attendant urged me to contact tonight's special guest, who's also a retired international purser and flight attendant for decades. Our listener said she cried when she heard of the information you will hear tonight. As a flight attendant, she had many suspicions after that Tuesday morning on September 11th, 2001, and it wasn't until now that these suspicions were validated. To many, 9-11 was what our government told us it was. To some, including many of you listening, and tonight's special guest and I, it is exactly the opposite. Tonight's special guest is Rebecca Roth, who enjoyed a nearly 30-year airline career working as both a flight attendant and an international purser. She was trained as an emergency medical technician and served as a volunteer firefighter. Her expertise and training as a flight attendant allowed her to research the events of September 11, 2001 with an insider's knowledge that eventually led her to discover details and answers to some of the most haunting questions surrounding that infamous day in our history. For her safety and that of her loved ones, she wrote a book as fiction. The book is titled Methodical Illusion. Rebecca's website is methodicalillusion.com, which is also linked on ours. And from somewhere in the world, I would like to welcome Rebecca Roth. Hello, Rebecca, and welcome to Veritas. Well, thank you very much for having me, Mel. It's my pleasure. And as I mentioned to, to the listeners, you and I conversed a few weeks ago, but you have been in almost every single radio show I know, and let's hope that we don't become repetitive tonight because I really, really want to discuss everything you've written. And to me, it's a little bit difficult after reading the book because obviously for security purposes, for the safety of, of, of yourself and, and your loved ones, you wrote this as fiction. Now, tell us a little bit more about yourself first. Well, you know, I am just uh, a retired flight attendant. I uh, I really never paid much attention to 9-11. 
I knew there was something wrong from day one for the fact that cell phones don't work at altitude and just many other things. The FAA hijacking protocols were not followed. And yet, why will, I worked until 2004, and I... Uh, I just could not look deeper, I guess, until I uh, actually started to write a novel just not about 9-11 at all, but just about life in the jet stream and what it's like to be a flight attendant and what some of my great co-workers were like. And I just thought it'd be kind of a fun book to write. Well, I wanted to introduce a Middle Eastern character into this novel that I was just starting. And kind of, you know, you kind of cook this up in your mind. This is the first book I've ever written. So it's really interesting to me as I'm typing, I was visualizing like a movie screen up above my head, watching and seeing the details and trying to type them in as fast as possible. And I typed into my a computer Google search there, uh, 19 Arab hijackers from 9-11, and up in front of me popped a BBC article dated September 23rd, 2001, uh, from the BBC saying that the Saudi government was suing the FBI for stealing the identity and claiming that six of their citizens were the hijackers from 9-11. Well, my goodness, I'm now over a decade away. I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, well, how did six people live through that? Well, as I read the article, they were actually, uh, several of them wanted, was a pilot, airline pilot, professional airline pilot who'd had his ID stolen from Denver, Colorado while he was uh, in some type of airline training or aviation training course here in the United States. Uh, the others hadn't even ever been to the United States. One that they claimed was at the, on the flight that went into Shanksville, Pennsylvania, asked, what is a Pennsylvania? He didn't even know what, what that state was. He, didn't, he had no idea. He was a, an engineer in a petroleum company outside of Riyadh. It's just crazy stuff. And so as I read this, I thought, well, wait a minute now. These, these people, they're still listed. So I go to Wikipedia, and sure enough, their names are still uh, listed as what the FBI in the United States is claiming are these 19 hijackers, and these guys are still alive. Well, that started a little uh, research for me. I put that novel aside literally. And I just got, it was like being hit over the head with a hammer to discover these guys lived through that. And I thought, well, then what I suspected from day one may not be the real story. And I put in literally thousands of hours a day. I got very obsessed with this because I found so many things connected and interconnected that I hadn't been told of by the media. And, you know, stolen gold and, and gold bonds and insurance fraud. And, I mean, it goes on and on. And it's just amazing how it all connects. And so what happened is I just started into this huge research project. And as I uh, did this, I used my 30-year career and uh, as my background. And I kept looking into the details of uh, phone calls and what the media was saying that the flight attendants were saying and the passengers were saying. And I got the hold of the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board documents and the FAA documents, what the planes were supposed to be doing, whether they were descending or whether they were upside down, and what the passengers were doing and saying and the voices and what the call recipients were saying and just charted all this stuff together and saw that it was an impossibility. A true impossibility. So just using all my background, I was a, a purser. I'd flown lots of international flights. I mean, I saw things in the phone calls. For instance, uh, almost everyone that called in said that the hijackers were of, quote, Middle Eastern descent, 
And I don't know anybody that speaks like that. I sure wouldn't have as an airline professional. There were flights I flew out of Amsterdam and Europe into the United States where I maybe had 60 or 80 different countries. I would not have described one of them as of, of Middle Eastern descent. Maybe if they were wearing their uh, that white robe costume thing that they wear in Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. or Kuwait, I would suggest they were from Middle East. But other than that, if you're wearing Western clothes, it's impossible to tell... Um, you know, an Iranian from a Hispanic descent. I mean, it's it just nobody would say that. I thought it was very odd. And then I started really looking into the details and that sort of thing. And just using my experience as I researched through what happened to the planes and passengers. And that was my driving force. I tried not to get too caught up on how the buildings came down or argue with anybody about what methods were used. Uh, but just looking for those planes and the passengers, because I remember the morning that it happened, I was luckily home from a, a European trip, so I was pretty jet-lagged out, but someone phoned me and said, turn on the television, and I did just as that plane went in the South Tower. And I'm like, how did they do that? Because that right there is kind of an impossibility. And that's one of the things that lots of American and United pilots are buying my book by the case and sharing them. And call me and talk to me. And that's one of the questions they keep asking me. Have you ever figured out how they did that? Because it's an impossibility for a 767 to disappear completely. Not the tail section. Nothing was left outside that building. It just kind of sucked into Like a into, knife through butter. Yes. And I even I could look at that a thousand times and I still have... I have no explanation, and I tell them, I really have no, I have no explanation for that. I remember that morning thinking that some, it was a trick photography thing or it was some kind of a hoax when I saw it. That was my initial reaction. It's like, that's impossible. And <laughs> I still feel that way, actually, by watching that video over and over. So it's really interesting what I did discover as I uh, pursued this looking at, I, I just like, I tell people I put my flight attendant shoes back on and I walked that aisle. And um, so I took all the details and the wording from the phone calls. And what I discovered was that this 9-11 event, the entire event was an illusion. And it was a very methodically thought out illusion. And it has been um, very methodically brainwashed into us as um, news watchers and television viewers over the years. And if you'll notice now, if you watch the news now and they're talking about ISIS, this new terror group that we seem to be helpless against, uh, they, uh, they always refer back to 9-11. And, and they're just uh, brainwashing you. I tell people to turn off their television because that's how the CIA brainwashes us in mass. I don't know if you notice ever since 9-11, even and you mentioned this in your book, too, and we've discussed this a lot here, uh, Building 7, how so many, so many TV outfits, they had especially one, I think it was the BBC, that had somebody discussing how the building had fallen and it was still behind them, which proved to me back then ever since, that right now, when you switch on the TV channel to channel, Mm -hmm. you hear the same word, word for word, almost as if they're being fed the same script. Have you noticed that? I have noticed that and actually had someone send me a YouTube video that someone had compiled all of the local ABC, NBC, Fox, all the local network people on the like Salt Lake or Denver or New York, those little subsidiaries of the large corporations. And they all and it's just constantly them saying the same thing. One of them was actually about the Easter Bunny. 
And they used exactly the same wording exactly from across the country. It's really fascinating. And yes, in fact, they were being uh, told that. And Jane Stanley was the uh, BBC person who was talking about the, it was Building 7 was referred to as the Solomon Building. And the Solomon Building, aka Building 7, was standing right behind her uh, as she said that it had collapsed. It collapsed actually 20 minutes later. But it's interesting. I also found out that there was an interesting character also in the BBC studios that morning. And he uh, is very interesting. He was a, uh, once the re, uh, prime minister of Israel, Ehud Barak. And he's actually the one, one of the very first people who told us from the BBC studios that it was Osama bin Laden behind this attack. And he is the one who coined the phrase war on terror. I thought that was very interesting. So somebody was in the BBC studio, BBC studio. Actually, someone had to write her teleprompter. And put that in there. Speaking 20 of twenty minutes before the <laughs> the building fell. Speaking of Building Seven, do you think Flight ninety three, the one that quote unquote crashed at Shanksville, was intended to quote unquote crash into Building Seven, but something happened and they had to go to Plan B? I think that's quite possible because one of the things that happened, and this is actually kind of common with the Boeing seven fifty seven. Every once in a while, right when you get at ready to push back, um, you can get a delay like a hydraulic system or something. I think that was just morning traffic that caused their delay, but it was a 41-minute delay. And think about that. It's almost an hour, 41 minutes. Uh, that's a pretty long delay. And that was actually scheduled to uh, depart at um, 8 o'clock or 7.59, somewhere in 8.01, somewhere right in there. So it departed at 8.42, so I guess it would have been 8.01 was their scheduled departure. It was departing from Newark, by the way, from the end of the runway at Newark. You could see the towers when they were there, standing there. It's not maybe five to eight miles away, so they could have actually taken off, and if they wanted to, to uh, crash into Building 7, it wouldn't have taken very long. They would have been pretty low to do that, do that too, if they could have. Done it from there. Speaking of all these planes, now when I see the footage, same thing with me. You know, I used to fly before, not 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 a commercial airliner, but I get the idea. And also, I know that when an airplane crashes into a building, there's some the the, the wings, the the, the, the tails, the, the front, the nose. There's no way it could penetrate that building like a knife through butter. And that was the, the second plane, the South Tower, the only one we saw. Then we have the Pentagon. Then we have Shanksville. Do you think that planes actually crashed? Well, um, no, I don't. Not these four planes. I, I know where these planes, I did find where, you've read the book, so you know. I, I did find right. where they were taken and how they were taken over. And um, what uh, whatever went into uh, the South Tower, a lot of airline pilots tell me that when they look at that, you, you, it's coming in slow enough that you can stop the frame in a video and see, uh, get measurements on it. It doesn't measure out to be the same uh, 200 series aircraft. It's more like a refueling tanker. And it's interesting, the connections to military refueling tankers and how that all weaves into to this, too, I'm sure will uh, talk about that because that's a huge connection into this whole thing. Uh, we can't slow down the film uh, enough to see what hit the North Tower. The Naudet brothers were filming a documentary in New York for the firefighters. They were just a couple blocks away and they 
just put their camera up there just to see something hit there. But it it appears to be smaller than a 767. And aircraft can't go that fast at that close to the sea level. They were about 700 to 1,000 feet off sea level when they hit the building. And they cannot go maximum speed. And if that thing looks like it's going closer to 700 miles an hour, you can't slow down a video to see it. As opposed to the 767 that we saw go into the South Tower, you can slow your video down just to see what that is and actually take measurements. So there's also some other abnormalities about that aircraft where it looks like it has some sort of pod device on the fuselage down below. And the pilots I've talked to have seen it and mentioned it and know that it's it was abnormal. And all, oftentimes the, the remote control device does have some sort of uh, pod type of connection to a fuselage of an aircraft. Now, this remote control thing, this is not high, uh, scientific uh, advanced. They've been doing this since the 70s. They have worked on this. After all, uh, the, the real hijackings that happened there uh, during the 70s. Yeah, that's true. And so well, let me just kind of jump into something and tell you this, that in the 90s, there was a company that sold to Boeing a flight termination system. It's kind of an override. And it was sold using this language in the event of a hijacking and a hijacker took over the cockpit command of the aircraft. We, we could land the aircraft remotely and therein the aircraft would be liberated by some SWAT team or military Delta force type of team. And so all four of those airplanes had, they would like us to believe, hijackers that had commandeered the cockpit. So you're asking yourself now, why didn't they use those? Because they were already in use. And when those take over an aircraft, and of course they wouldn't have known they were being taken over, but when those flight termination systems take over an aircraft, they actually override the uh, transponder frequency and they interrupt all ability for the pilots to communicate in any way, shape, or form with anyone, including the flight attendants in the back. Is this why originally when this technology came out, a lot of pilots were against it? Yes, because it, it, when you think about this, in a hijacking, just so you know, we had a set protocols. We had code words to use and step-by-step methodology that the FAA uh, shared with us every year in our yearly training. We went over exactly what we would do, wouldn't do, would say, wouldn't say, and very, very careful uh training for this. It was called the common strategy was the FAA's hijacking protocol at that time. And that was, it hadn't changed since the seventies because we really hadn't had a hijacking. So these are the things that code words and the uh, actions and the reactions that I saw that were not being followed by the flight attendants that really kind of tweaked me to think, uh Oh, there's something else here, not a hijacking. There weren't hijackers really on board because there wouldn't be that level of confusion that, that they reported in. So what would happen is we would try to get the plane on the ground. So that's why in that strategy, it was delay, delay, delay the hijacker from getting inside the cockpit, taking command of the aircraft. So we would had all these little techniques that we would use to prevent them from getting in there. In the meantime, the pilots would turn on their radio and what we call Squawk 7500, which is a frequency, it's an emergency frequency that would tell the air traffic controllers there's a hijacker on board. And it would tell other aircraft and the air, the airline company involved would also be contacted that this there was a hijacking on this flight number from A to B. And, um, well, while we, what the pilots would, while the flight attendants would be 
preventing this guy from getting into the cockpit, no matter how we could do it. The pilots then, they would be talking to people on the ground. because So you can see why they wouldn't want to lose their community. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.